Hello and welcome to the Speak Freely podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Carano. The Speak Freely podcast is a new initiative by the European Students for Liberty to foster ideas and debate surrounding economics, public policy, and the social sciences more generally. On this first episode, I brought on the guest, Dr. Jamie White. A New Zealand politician who's the former leader of the ACT Party, the Free Market Party in New Zealand, and the new research director at the IEA, the Institute of Economic Affairs in London. Jamie holds a PhD in philosophy from the University of Cambridge, and he has radical ideas on how to change education. Please listen and enjoy. If you find the ideas interesting or have ideas of your own you'd like to share, please continue the debate by commenting and sharing, and also registering your opinion with us at Speak Freely. So, you recently proposed your idea of a, like a radical free market reform to education, and so I just wanted to ask you about that. First, why, why is it that you think the current education system is so hopeless? But for the very simple reason that uh, the government provides educations uh, funded from taxation for free. Now, that may seem, at first sight, like a, a virtue of the system. After all, you know, free is good, right? Um, but it isn't. And the reason it isn't is that uh, by doing this, by providing education for free, they crowd out private suppliers of education. Um, you don't stop paying for it. You've got to pay for it through your taxation. But you effectively don't have uh, com- firms competing to get your business. Right? So the people who you end up getting educated by, or your children get educated by, are people who don't face the normal burden uh, that a business faces of providing a good or service uh, sufficiently good that people are willing to pay the price for it. They're relieved of that burden. They get their money not from willing customers but from politicians who forward the tax money to them. Uh, this relieves them of the normal uh, burden of providing a good service. They can provide a terrible service and they still get the money. If you provide a terrible service in the private sector, you go broke. Um, so we get bad schools persisting indefinitely, um, and the all sorts of other side effects. I mean, that's the principal one. But <clears throat> again, think about the private sector. Uh, why do companies innovate? Why do they come up with new ways of doing things? Well, because they want to make a profit. If they come up with a new way of doing something, then for a while at least, before it's copied, they'll do very well. They'll pull customers from other from their competitors. They can charge higher prices. When you can't earn a profit, which state school managers can't, they have no incentive to do that. And that's why we see incredibly kind of uniform uh, style of education, not very well uh, varied and tailored to the different needs of different kinds of children. Wait, you're starting to see that a lot of Western countries, the US, a lot of European countries, and even the UK with the free schools, acknowledging the lack of school choice and what that means. So they're coming up with these reforms, vouchers, free schools, or moves in that direction. What's wrong with them, and why are they not sufficient? Well, they're, they're an improvement, for sure, because they mean that instead of... In, under most state systems, you end up going to a school in your area. You don't really have much choice about which school you go to. And those schools are run by the state. Um, either the, in the United States, it might be uh, a lower level, but it's still run by a governmental agency. So when you get a, a voucher, let's say, that's, that's the basic voucher system, all of these variations around the world, 
you get to spend your voucher at any school you like that is able to take them. Um, now, one of the problems is that uh, these systems don't have many schools that are able to take the vouchers. So, for example, you can't take your voucher for a free school here in, in Britain, uh, which the charter schools in America, and spend it at a private school. It has to be at a designated school for this purpose, if you sort of mean. You can't... So you've already, by not making it cash, by making it a voucher redeemable only to specified kind of school, you've already eliminated a lot of the choice. Within those specified schools, there's a little bit more variation and experimentation going on, and they, they do face some quasi-commercial pressures. They've got to get students. So it is an improvement. Uh, in New Zealand, which I've just come from, they're called partnership schools. And you see far more variation amongst partnership schools than you see amongst normal state schools. And they get good results for the children that have been targeted, which are uh, poor and Maori and Pacific ch children. So I'm not entirely against them. However, they do have some shortcomings. The first is that because this is an education voucher, redeemable at a school, the government has to say what counts as a school. Right? They have to say, well, you, can only, you can't take this anywhere and turn it into cash, right? The government's not going to convert it into cash wherever you spend it. So it has to be at a school. Now the government's in the business of saying, what's a school? and what counts as a proper education. So they come in again and start specifying what can and can't be done at, uh, let's call them charter schools, who can and can't teach at charter schools, and they end up getting heavily regulated. And if you look at the history of them, uh, the most advanced country is Sweden, and the politics around charter schools becomes increasingly that people complain about tax money being given to schools and the school's not doing the things that they would like the schools to do, and the schools effectively get drawn back into the state system. So they're effectively what you might call a special character state school, is what they end up being. Um, this is very clear in New Zealand. Uh, the, the procedure for getting uh, the right to start a so-called um, partnership school is incredibly laborious, and it goes through a government agency, and they have to approve or disapprove of you, then also what's ha clearly happening in New Zealand is that whether or not the school survives is not any longer, or never has been actually, a, a consequence of whether or not enough parents choose to send their kids there. That would be how it would work in a private system. A school got shut down because people disapproved of how it was running itself. Even though there were children attending it, it was shut down by the government. That's, that, this is not how it's supposed to work in a private system, and that's how it always ends up with a charter system. You have a, you have a potential check on that. Let's say you move it to the most local level uh, of, of state control, so a local authority gets to, to manage the schools in its district. Then you just have the parents lobbying their local authority to have changed to the school, and isn't that the same type of check the private sector would maintain? Uh, well, it's certainly better than having a central government agency, like a Ministry of Education or whatever it is, uh, controlling it. And there are general arguments, even if you don't have a commercial system, for having the most local control possible. Uh, but I, I don't even really like that system. I mean, we don't have a... Your local supermarket doesn't thrive or collapse on the say-so of a local committee. It thrives or survives on the willingness of 
customers to go and spend their money there. And I see no reason why schools should be any different. Schools are not... Schools are delivering a service like any other. People should be free to take it or not take it if they want, having to bear the price of it. And whether or not a school survives shouldn't depend on whether the local bigwigs like the school or not. But then that, that comes back to this concern that we want to ensure that everyone has some education. And so the, the regulation is to ensure that there's a minimum standard out there and so that every, every student goes for a certain period of time and gets what's considered the base for success in life. Right. Well, I want everybody to wear shoes, especially when it's cold. I think it's good to wear shoes when it's cold. But I don't see any need for the government to regulate uh, shoes or to dictate to people when or what kind of shoes they wear because I figure people, people will naturally wear shoes when it's cold. Um, they might not wear them at the beach, but they'll wear them otherwise. Uh, and if we were to start regulating shoes and providing shoes for free, everything would go wrong in the shoe business. Right? We'd have probably too many shoes, but of too low a standard. We'd have people wearing shoes at the wrong times, um, and when, not when they want, and so on. And I don't see any reason why education can't be left left alone in the same way that shoes are left alone. But it, it's, it's slightly different because education's an investment for the future. You don't see the immediate payoff. Um, and it's somewhat of a social investment. An educated populace is able to be more participatory in a democracy, for example, mm -hmm. and they're more productive. Now, we, we do this stuff on, say, financial services, where the government gives advice to people on, on investing in their future so that they don't have to bear a pension burden. So why should we not guide people to want to be more educated such that they are able to provide for themselves. Well, what, the point I'm making is that no such guidance is needed. If you look around, if you look through history and around the world, you'll see that people, even when their incomes are really quite low, so I'm talking today money, um, once incomes get up to around 3,000 uh, US dollars a year, people start sending their kids to school. I think e actually even at lower incomes. There's some work by one of our chaps, one of our, someone associated with the IA, a chap called Tooley, who shows this. People start uh, getting their kids privately educated when their incomes are quite low. And historically, in, in the United Kingdom, uh, in the late 19th century, I think something around 90, in the early 90% of children got more than four years of schooling. Um, again, you know, when British people were very poor by modern standards. So I don't think there's any need to force people to send their kids to school. They would do that anyway. I think anybody can see nowadays the advantages of being educated. Um, I think the, pr the problem, so you, you don't need the coercion. And then there are going to be some cases where the coercion is actually very counterproductive. I, we now in Britain coerce people to go to school for 13 years, I think it is. I mean, I think you can't leave school in Britain until you're, what, 18? Am I 16, right about this? 16. You can leave at 16. Can yeah. You? Right. Uh, well, okay, let's take that. That's the same as in New Zealand. I know of several kids at my school, when I went to school, who just, I mean, it was hell for them. Sitting in class, reading Shakespeare, doing algebra. I mean, this was agony, and you were wasting their time. You were making them uh, disgruntled and stopping them from going to the workplace and earning money. And, in fact, getting the skills that would serve them in the future. You were forcing them to get skills they didn't need or want and preventing them from getting the ones you do. Why would this happen? Well, of course, because <clears throat> the people supplying it, you, they, you're their prisoner. They can force you to take their product. And, of course, that's precisely what they do. 
and they provide they don't provide a good product. If you privatize schools in the way I'm suggesting, I think another side effect you'd get is that what is offered would be more attractive to a wider range of people. It would vary more. And there would be offerings that those kids who wanted to leave school when they were 15 or earlier would want to stay at school if school was like that. There could be all sorts of interesting models. For example, you could have schools that were also workplaces. So the, the, they were kind of like in-house apprenticeships, if you see what I mean. There could be a wild variety of options. And the, the minute you start going compulsory, <clears throat> you've got to specify what's being compelled. And of course, a government agency can't be creative. It can't come up with a wide range of things. Everybody starts lobbying for what should be in the compulsory offering, right? So you'll see lots of debates in every country around the world about what should be included in the national syllabus. Uh, and they're always trying to peddle their ideology through the school system. This is another complaint I have about the state school system. It is vulnerable to capture by ideological groups. Uh, this has certainly happened in the UK, if you look at what people are taught. Uh, and you get a really grotesque situation where people are forced through taxation to fund an education, often one that they also have to make their child take because they can't afford an alternative, which is counter to their own values. You, you might, if you go to a modern school, you will be fed a kind of diet of what you might call politically correct 21st century ideology. What if you're a, um, a Catholic who is violently opposed to these ideas? It seems outrageous to me that, you are, that you, we live in a system where you're more or less you're forced to fund it, and you may well effectively be forced to send your child to go to such a school. At, at the same point in time, you, if you look back when the first um, law was made to mandate education to 16 in the States, mm. it was done for a very specific reason. You had a, a, a huge change as a result of the Industrial Revolution, that the typical modes of output were no longer being employable for the vast majority. Mm -hmm. So they thought this would move people into better sectors. Now, we are at a similar point right now, let's say, the, the lot of new technologies coming out making blue-collar jobs somewhat redundant. Mm -hmm. So if you're saying you take them out of school to go into work, those skills aren't necessarily transferable and valuable. But I think you're making uh, going in exactly the wrong direction. I think that <clears throat> the fact that the economy changes and that the skills uh, in demand change is an argument against state education. In a, a private education system would be much quicker to adapt to these changes in demand than a state system. A state system uh, is kind of monolithic. It's like an enormous oil tanker headed in one direction. To shift it, to change it, is very difficult because the people inside the system have no incentive to do so. Right? They don't, they don't, they're not paid in return for giving people the skills that they need in the economy. They just paid out of taxation. If they were having to attract customers, they would be very quick to respond to these changes in demand, and they would come up with whole new ways of, of teaching. Uh, and in, indeed, you know, it's not even clear to me that these, the new kind of economic, new economy you speak of, is, people are best prepared for it in schools. They may well be better prepared for it in other ways. So. You know, I don't presume to know those things. If you had a market system, all sorts of entrepreneurs would take a chance that they have got a good idea. You'd have educational entrepreneurs. You'd get rapid. You'd get lots of little experiments. Some would work. Some wouldn't work. Uh, and we'd see things adapting very quickly. Under the state system, we see nothing happening. 
I mean, education has hardly changed in the last 50 years. All they've done is introduce um, computers and audiovisual technology. What they teach and the basic approach to teaching is very much the same now as it was when I was a kid. Well, so that, that, that's another point then. So I, I accept that you're saying that the people in school will get better prepared because the schools can innovate. Mm. But what about the people that fall through, that don't go to schools? Because you're giving them the option not to go to school, to not get this basic mm -hmm. minimum. Well, again, uh, there are two cases here. Right? Broad, there, there are many, but I'll just simplify. One is where the child doesn't go to school because they've got a better alternative. Uh, and there are going to be many such cases. Uh, not everybody is suited to, to formal education, and they could be more productive uh, doing something else and have a better future. I mean, keeping somebody in school and stopping them from earning uh, is harming their long-term future uh, some, in many cases. Now, let's, there's, there's that case where the parents and the child between them come to the right decision not to attend school. There may be cases where it's mere negligence. And I think this is the case that people are worried about and why they want uh, compulsion. First thing to say is that compulsion often doesn't work anyway. I mean, if you think about you know, people are truant from school a lot, uh, and it tends to be poorer kids. Under the current law, they're not allowed to be employed. Right? But they're still truant, but they, they can't take full-time employment. And they become, often become delinquents during that period. Uh, so enforcement, it doesn't even work in most cases. Now, but in the extreme case where you really think, okay, there's a negligent parent here, the child will benefit from an education, you don't need to remedy that problem by forcing everybody to go to school. Right? You can deal with the hard cases, the, the truly bad cases, in the way that we do normally. So insofar as you think the state should get involved in protecting children from negligent or actually worse parenting, use those mechanisms, whatever they are. You know, we have them anyway, with some, you know, removing children from their homes, putting them in foster care and so on. If you think it's an, a case that's that abusive, well then take those kinds of measures. To instead force everybody to go to school, even when they shouldn't be, is a ridiculous solution to that very narrow problem. Um, so you have a narrow solution to the narrow problem is what I would advise. But then um, it, it gets back to this kind of philosophical question because what you mentioned there is that you think that there's more productive things for the child to do other than schooling and that's a possibility. But is the point of school just to increase your productivity? We, we, we value the idea of a liberal education because we think it makes every citizen uh, a democratic participant, it puts them on equal footing. Um, it's like the old million values of the reason people are educated is so that it leads to better outcomes for all because there's a base sense of equality. Once you take away that from some, you introduce new inequalities into the system. Um, well, I think that you don't need, as I said, you don't need to coerce people to get educated. Uh, they'll get educated anyway. But what they won't necessarily do is get educated according to your particular view of what an education is for. Um, in fact, it's very difficult to go through life without getting educated. I mean, there's a tendency to mix up schooling with education. There are all sorts of ways to get educated that don't involve going to school. And a lot of them happen whether you choose them to happen or not. Right? Everybody learns to speak, for example. They don't have to go to school to learn how to speak. Um, 
So the, I don't like this idea that we, you keep using the word we want there to be this or that. Who are we? Well, you know, I want certain things for my kids. You may want certain different things for your kids. And there's no we that wants anything in particular. Uh, of course, people, uh, there are external benefits to my education. People can, for example, talk to me. Um, and they can learn things from me. I can be more productive in my work. We will benefit from that. But I get enough benefit out of that myself. Right? The, the benefits, those social benefits actually redound to me as well. That I don't need to be coerced to do the things that produce them. Um, <clears throat> this is a so-called inframarginal externality. That's to say that all of the uh, social benefits um, are produced when I... Uh, do as much of the thing in question, in this case education, uh, as I want for my own good. And let me give you a, another example. Um, brushing your teeth. And if you brush your teeth and have nice breath, that's a public good. Right? People, people benefit from that. Do we, why don't we subsidize toothpaste? Why don't we make brushing your teeth compulsory? Well, because I get a lot of benefit from having clean breath and other people being willing to be around me. So there's no need to compel it. Education is a similar, such a good. It's the same kind of a good. Uh, I will produce, I will educate myself sufficiently for the public good just for my own sake. So there's no need to compel it. There's no need, and, and as I say, the minute you start compelling it, you've got to say what it is. And then you're down, you, then you're in trouble. You've uh, brought a pretty compelling defense of the people in this new system, but then... I want to know how your system deals with the marginal cases. So you mentioned the one case you deal with is if it's a negligent parent and we have the, the means to deal with that with the state. But what about other marginal cases such as the parents are too for, uh, poor to afford the school? You're not giving yeah. out vouchers, so what are you doing? No, okay, if you don't have vouchers and you are worried about uh, people being able to afford school, I think the solution is to give them cash. So um, that's to say... Uh, don't provide them with vouchers to go to that are redeemable only at a school, because then you're forcing them uh, to to spend it in that way. And you also, of course, got all the trouble I mentioned before about the schools returning into a kind of quasi-state system. Give them enough money so that they could buy an education for their children if they thought that was the best use of the money. Um, now, how much money would that need to be? Surprisingly little. Um, one of the things, another benefit of having a privatized system is that people would experiment in finding newer and low-cost ways of providing education effectively. And one thing that's startling about state systems, if you think about them, is that there are no education chains. So you don't get a school with a, a known brand that then branches out and has branches of the school in lots of different parts of the city or in lots of different cities. That's, a, that would be a, that's something you would probably expect to happen in a, a privatized system, you'd get these brands. And that, that's fantastic because the brand, they would have to maintain the quality because to protect the brand, just like McDonald's. You know, you go into McDonald's, you know what you're going to get. Um, and you would have brands that were at the high end, at the low end, and they would find, well, just branching actually would be create efficiencies in itself because you've, you've got some fixed costs. But there would be, people would be experimenting in new, much more efficient ways of providing an education. It seems to me that modern technology ought to be possible to provide a pretty good education at quite low cost. Um, this is done in poor countries, actually. They've got very low cost educations. 
And so I think that this is another, another problem. We're wasting, I would imagine, well, I'm, I'm sure we're wasting vast quantities on inefficient, and the inefficient provision of education. So my answer is it would get cheaper, it would be better tailored to poor people, and if, you need, if you're concerned about ability to pay, deal with that problem in cash. In fact, that, that's not just about education, that's a, my general view. <clears throat> Under the current system of social welfare, welfare states in Europe and Britain, people with low incomes get a lot transferred to them. There's quite a big transfer, but they don't get the cash. They get goods and services, or services when they get health care and education in particular. Uh, and they get pensions when they're old. And this effectively puts them in the position of children being allocated stuff by their parents. They no longer choose, they can't act on their own priorities. You know, I, I'd rather have more education and less health care, or I'd rather spend more money now than when I'm old, and so on. They just get what they're given. And it, it not only does it mean they get the wrong stuff, because um, how can the state know what they they should be getting? Um, it puts them in a really demeaning position. I'd much rather see all transfers done by cash than um, goods and services. And there's a one more marginal case that I can think of where I would say that there needs to, there would I theoretically need to be some provision. Is what about children who are disabled or special needs? Under what situation would there be a private sector incentive? Because it's very costly to educate students like these, but parents find value in it. Right. Well, again, I think it's just a repeat of what we've already said. If you privatize the supply of their education, um, I think they'd get better. They'd probably get a better service in quality. We'll get, I'll get to expense in a second. Uh, so there would be uh, there would be schools that would. Uh, make an effort to uh, to serve them in the way they need. I think it's also worth pointing out that people aren't as selfish as uh, they're often made out to be. If you look at education in the United States, the elite private universities, uh, a lot there's cross-subsidization between the full-fee-paying students and students from poorer backgrounds who don't pay the full fees. And the people who go to those universities know that, the people paying the fees, and they're, they're fine with it, right? It's part of the system. And it's a kind of, um, it's a charity system done internally to the university. And I would also expect to see plenty of that at, um, in a privatised system. That's to say, you might have a local school, it's private, there's a kid in the neighbourhood who's in a wheelchair, let's say, that cr increases the costs of educating that child at that school. And the other families are willing to bear that cost out of decency. I think you would see. I think you'd see a lot of that. Insofar as you don't see that, again, it's just <clears throat> the answer I gave before, which is whatever provisions the state wants to make for helping the disabled, um, they do it directly for that person, so to speak. So the money would go to the person, not to the school. So, so, you want, so you're not suggesting give a flat lump sum to, to poorer families for it. You want it uh, needs-based. Oh, I, I don't want to get into the details of uh, min, like basic minimum incomes and all that kind of thing. I mean, all I'm, all I'm saying at this point, that's a whole different issue, is insofar as you're worried about people's ability to pay for stuff, to have a decent life, right, don't provide them with what you think is a decent life. Provide them with the cash with which they could buy a decent life by their 
lights of what a decent life is. The the problem I there's think about the educate what we do with education here. We say, well, everybody should get an education. Well, we could and they shouldn't be stopped from getting on because they're poor. Well, stop them from being poor then. Give them the money. And no, we don't do that. We give them the education. Now who benefits from that? Not the poor person, because if you gave them the money and they wanted the education, they could just go and buy the education. The people who benefit from giving an education rather than the cash to buy it are the providers of the education. Because now they don't have to worry about the quality of what they produce. They don't have to worry about whether anybody would be willing to buy their rubbish education. So they, of course, lobby aggressively. Why do you think teachers, unions, and the educational establishment are so hostile to voucher systems and privatization? Because they lose their power. They lose their ability to force people, by law and by the confiscation of their money through taxation, to consume their product. It's a racket. I mean, imagine that we did it with, with um, wine. Government says, oh, God, wine's good. Everybody should be able to drink wine, no matter how poor they are. So what we're going to do is we're going to supply everybody with wine, funded out of taxation. Um, well, this would be heaven for the winemakers. They've got guaranteed income. So what, what are they going to do? Right? What, will, what will happen then? You will get an overproduction of wine, and the quality will collapse. Because why would they give a shit what the quality is? Uh, it, it, no longer, it's no longer of any concern to them. And this is precisely what, why, why do we think things are going to be different in education? Why do we think things are going to be different in healthcare? It's a crazy way of funding it. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's, that's, that's a fair point. And I think you've presented a, partic- a particularly compelling case on how the government could deal with it. And so the only thing I would have left to answer is how feasible do you think this is that people would buy into it? Uh, you know, there's a tendency to be overly pessimistic uh, amongst us libertarians. <laughs> you see things have gone in the other direction for, for a long time. But, you know, we had a great spate of privatization in the 80s. People might have, I, mean, I would have thought that in, say, in the early 70s, mid-70s, people would have not believed, perhaps, that the post office, that took a bit longer, but the post office, the railways, all of these things could have been privatized. They have been, and nobody would want them to, a few people, apart from crazy Labour Party people, would want them to go back into state ownership now. I mean, telephones are the most remarkable one. I remember, I'm old enough to remember when getting a telephone was a process that took weeks. And in New Zealand before it was privatised, you needed really the support of a member of parliament to get your, I'm not joking, to get your telephone installation sped up. Um, and now it's instantaneous, you know, the costs have collapsed. Nobody will want to go back to that. So I think that, I, I think that if dissatisfaction with state education um, got uh, high enough, it might be possible, I mean, you, and you're seeing in the United States, in, particular, in the United States where state education is really very, very bad, for, um, especially for poorer people, that's where the movement towards charter schools is coming from. Often black communities really pushing, they want charter schools. And I, I, so I think, I'm not, I'm not that pessimistic, I think that you could, um, it could one day happen. And, you know, maybe, maybe the charter school movement is the beginning of it. Um, I think in university education, um, we've already seen a kind of, in Britain, for example, now you pay fees, uh, £9,000. Um, if the funding of that were moved away from the state, so it wasn't done through state loans, I, I, we ad- here at the IEA advocate 
well, we've had a paper advocating, and I agree with it, um, that the universities themselves should lend the money and issue bonds, sell bonds to, to raise the money. If they lent the money to the students, that would give them an interest in producing a high-quality education that would allow the students to go on and make the money to repay the loan. At the moment, the universities don't carry the risk, right, because the money comes from the government. Um, so I think there are all sorts of little ways in which we could see ourselves edging towards a much more privatised uh, solution. In Australia, the government gives you... you could, School fees are tax-deductible. I mean, that's obviously fair, because you're not using the state system. And the result of that is I think about a third of students, uh, school students now go to private schools in Australia. Uh, so there are, there are small things could have, can have, like these tax changes, could have a, a big effect. Um, <clears throat> so I'm not, I'm not so pessimistic in the case of education. Okay, well, that's a lot of food for thought, and thank you. And hopefully this goes uh, some way to educating people about these ideas as well. Uh, so thank you, Jamie. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and make sure to tune in next time where I'll have another guest talking about other relevant issues. Feel free to continue the debate by commenting or messaging us with your opinions. Thank you, and have a nice day.